following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore, for our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. Happy Mother's Day to everybody. I am uh, lucky enough to be joined in the front row by my mother and also the mother of my children, which is just a uh, great reminder of how blessed I am. So happy Mother's Day to everyone. I hope you are feeling honored um, today as mothers. And um, as we kind of head into the book of Exodus, it doesn't really at first glance seem like the kind of book that you can tie into Mother's Day very easily. And yet, already in the series, we've had a couple of really great examples of the wildly protective and loving heart of a mother. And in fact, uh, last week, we, we heard about Jacobed, the mother of Moses, who, in the face of intense persecution and, and someone coming to kill her child, she hid him. And she eventually, after she could not hide him anymore, she sent him down the river towards Pharaoh's palace, hoping against hope that he would find, her precious boy would find safety, ironically, in the very house of the man who was trying to kill him. And then in chapter 1, we uh, saw this really cool story about the Egyptian midwives, who, because they honored God, defied their own king in order to protect these little Hebrew babies. Just amazing pictures of, of motherhood. And in chapter 2, where we're into today, we actually get another picture of the mother heart. But it's not from any of the mothers or any of the women in the chapter at all. It's actually from God himself. And if that might seem a little weird to talk about God having a mother's heart, we should perhaps consider that God created man and woman in his own image. And so this loving, nurturing heart that mothers have comes directly from the loving, nurturing heart of God himself. And so we see right at the end of chapter 2, this wonderful little verse, verse 25. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Simple enough statement, but doesn't it paint this picture of a God who, like so many mothers since, looks on as his children suffered and just simply could not bear it any longer? simply could not hold himself back and had to go and gather them together, his little precious children. In fact, the whole salvation story is a picture of God gathering his kids and protecting his children. And so this morning, I just want to personally thank all of the mothers here for the way that you have embraced and revealed God's gift to you of a spirit of a nurturing heart and a loving heart. Thank you for that. And happy Mother's Day. May God bless you as you have blessed yours. Now, as we, before we get into uh, the passage today, I thought prayer might be a good thing. Yes? Yeah? All right. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for a chance to honor and to come alongside mothers who are both celebrating and hurting, women who wish they could be and but couldn't. We just thank you that we get to be a community, and we thank you that you are part of that community. We thank you that you have given us 
your spirit of caring and loving, nurturing, among many other fantastic qualities you have that you've given to us. We thank you for that. We ask as we explore your passage and your, your word today that you would come be a part of this. Speak through me. Don't let me just speak by myself. That's just bad for everybody. But speak through me and, and help us to learn and grow towards you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, in 2008, Hollywood unleashed upon the unsuspecting public the movie The Incredible Hulk. Has anyone seen The Incredible Hulk? Edward Norton, Liv Tyler, the dad from um, Modern Family, if you didn't know. Anyway. But it was kind of a weird thing because only five years earlier they had made The Hulk already with Eric Banner. But the second movie was way better. You see, the first movie, it spent so much time with this backstory about how Bruce Banner became the Hulk and, and all of this stuff and how it all came together. And really, we got kind of bored because we just really turned up to the movies to see a big green dude smash stuff. I mean, that's really what we wanted to see. But they spent all this time with this backstory. The second movie, they learned their lesson. And what they did is they told the whole backstory in this really quick montage during the opening credits. You know, so we could sit there and it's like 30 seconds, we get the whole story of Bruce Banner becoming the Hulk. Right? And it was good. It was much better. We could get right into the story and we get into the good stuff really, really quickly. Now, I tell you all of that really useless stuff to say that this passage that we're getting into today, Exodus chapter 2, 11 to 25, it feels a little bit like the montage during the opening credits of the Exodus story. I mean, you've got the first chapter we've already looked at, sets up this whole problem of the slavery in Egypt. And then you've got the beginning of chapter 2, this dramatic birth story of the hero Moses. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, spoiler alert, by the way, beginning of chapter 3, you've got the burning bush and the beginning of the great story of Exodus, the real story. But there's a lot of gap between baby Moses and burning bush. There's a lot of backstory that I've got to kind of tell you. In fact, there's 80 years of backstory. And so somehow we've got to get from baby Moses' grandson of Pharaoh to this 80-year-old shepherd in Midian. I mean, there's a lot, of, a lot of ground to cover. So we get these 15 very quick verses as a montage of Moses' life heading up to the beginning of his story. So I thought we'd read it together a little bit and maybe pepper in a few details as we go along. It should be up on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, and we learn from other parts of the Bible that he's about 40 years old at this point, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He went up to the one in the wrong and asked, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who are you to make us... To, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. 
All right, so this is the incident that changes Moses' life. This is the point at which he kind of switches from becoming prince of Egypt to man on the run. But what's interesting to me is right at the beginning, in the first verse, we are told twice Moses knew that the Hebrews were his own people. Now, this is kind of in contrast to the Exodus movie that um, has just come out recently where Moses grapples with the idea of, is he Egyptian, is he Hebrew? It seems from here and other passages in, in the New Testament, Moses was well aware of his Hebrew ancestry. He knew he was a Hebrew. And it also seems like he knew that God was actually going to use him to help the Hebrews. You see that in the book of Acts. He was already aware of God's desire for him to be a rescuer of the Hebrews. It's kind of an interesting idea. So that's very early on in his life there. Now, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. As you do in Midian, that's, that's kind of what you do. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters. Yeah, no comment there. Reese had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Okay, so this begins Moses' life on the run. And Pharaoh is trying to kill Moses. Now, it may have been as a punishment for killing the Egyptian, like a justice sort of thing, capital punishment. Or it may have also been, and I, I tend to think this is the case, more of a revenge. This Moses has been adopted into Pharaoh's family. He's been adopted into the Egyptian culture. And now he has turned on the Egyptians. He's taken his side with the Hebrews, with the slaves. And so Pharaoh is out to revenge him. Possibly even personally hurt that this man he invited, raised as his own grandson, has turned against him. So Moses is on the run. He flees to Midian, uh, which we have up here on the screen. As you can see, it's kind of this real backwater, out-of-the-way place. Uh, rough sort of terrain, not a lot of natural growth, very not a, not a great place to really be trying to live. Uh, so he goes there and... Um, he, uh, he, sorry, he's very different from, from Egypt, where he's come from. And interesting also from the promised land, where he's going. It's very much a wilderness experience for him. All right, so back to the passage, verse 18. When the girls returned to Reuel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Reuel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Okay, so this is where we're introduced to Reuel. Later on, we're going to find Reuel equals Jethro. Okay, Jethro and Reuel, same person, two different names. And what's interesting here too is they both have, they're both Hebrew names. And in fact, Zipporah, his daughter, is also a Hebrew name. And other evidence suggests that perhaps these people in Midian would have been followers of Yahweh followers of God. They would have worshipped God. And that brings up an interesting point because if they were followers of God 
And they were aware of what was going on in Egypt with the Hebrew slaves. And it's reasonable to suggest that after 400 years, they had a clue what was going on. They knew that Egypt was oppressing God's people. And here is a man who is identified as an Egyptian. And Reuel's response to this, bring him in, invite him in to have something to eat. That's a pretty powerful statement of forgiveness, of grace, and of acceptance. Verse 21, Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. So Moses begins a new life, gets married, has a family, opens a sheep business, and that's it. In fact, that's really all we hear from Moses for the next 40 years. That's his life. Verse 23, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. Now, my my first reaction to this is, hang on a second, which king? Which pharaoh are we talking about here? Because when Moses was born and then adopted into the family, the pharaoh was Moses' grandfather. But it's 40 years later that Moses flees from Midian. So has that grandfather died and the, the son become pharaoh now? It's reasonable to perhaps expect that. And if that's the case, this pharaoh has now died. So the pharaoh that takes his place, the pharaoh that Moses is going to interact with, could very well be his brother or his stepbrother, half-brother, however you call it, his adopted brother, or at least the cousin, someone of his own generation. So when you see the movies Prince of Egypt and this latest one um, where Moses has this personal connection to Pharaoh, that's reasonably possible probable even Moses would have grown up in the house whether it's his cousin or even his uncle someone of the next generation up he would know him and Pharaoh would know Moses so to go against them would have caused some interesting emotional dilemmas for him but Molly mentioned something very interesting to this to me as well my wife Molly she mentioned that either way the, the most important part of that statement is that the Pharaoh who was trying to kill Moses is dead. And that kind of got my brain thinking a little bit. You see, the, Mero, the, the Pharaoh who is trying to kill both as a baby and as an adult is dead. And Moses is now safe to return and to complete his mission. Sound a little familiar? A little bit like Jesus when he was a baby and hunted down by the king of that time as well hidden in Egypt, and then an angel comes and tells him the king who is trying to kill him is dead. You guys can go back to Israel and fulfill your mission now. Interesting little parallel there. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. First question comes out of that. Did God forget? <laughs> it says God remembered his covenant. Did he, did he forget? It's like, oh, the Israelites, I completely forgot about that. I'm over here, I'm looking at the Midianites, and ugh, got the slaves over here. I better do something about this. This is not that, not that God. 
This is not like me who puts his son in timeout uh, and then forgets about him for a while. <laughs> okay, he's not that God. This is not a statement of forgetting or remembering. This is a statement of God saying, I'm bringing this to my attention now. Now I'm going to do something about this. This is a statement from a literary perspective. This is the beginning of the story. It's going to happen now. I am stepping in. Which is interesting because other than God blessing the Egyptian midwives in chapter 1, this is actually the first time God is mentioned in the story at all. This is the first time God has injected himself into this story. But from here on out, it's all God all the time. And it is going to be the story of him going and doing his thing. But I'm not going to step on what Reuben's going to talk about. We'll get to that later. So there we are. There we have it. We're, we're all filled in now. The gaps are filled in. We've gone from baby Moses to 80-year-old shepherd in the wilderness. Uh, we know why he's there. We're done. We're good. We're ready for the story to start. Ready for the good stuff to begin. So I'm thinking Burger King for lunch. I don't know about you. But perhaps before we all file out of here, before we get into our lunch plans, since I have a couple of minutes, maybe there's a little bit more to the story than we first thought. Maybe this is more than just filling in the gaps, more than just getting the backstory in place so we're not confused. Maybe there's something here meaningful to us. After all, when the story of the Exodus is retold in the New Testament, as it is a couple of times, guess which part of the story gets special attention? This part. This passage is quoted and talked about several times in several key places. This story is important to the Bible and to the story of Exodus. See, what we discover when we look at this, and I've, I've kind of alluded to this already, is that while the rest of the book of Exodus is all about God and what He is doing, chapter 2 is a little bit of a picture of Moses and his life. So what do we see? When we see Moses' life, what, what, do, we have, what do we see here? My first impression is actually a little depressing. <laughs> Moses' life, not so great. I mean, first of all, chapter 2 covers 80 years of history. Okay, this is a long time. From the time Moses was born to the time his story begins, 80 years. 40 years in an Egyptian palace, that's probably not so bad. 40 years in a Midian desert, probably not so great. What a long time to wait. Remember, Moses was aware that God was doing something with him. And what a time to wait. And it means he's 80 years old at least before he gets going and does stuff. I don't know about you, but when I'm 80 years old, I'm not going to be wanting to run around Egypt talking to kings and pharaohs. I'm going to, want to, I'm going to be wanting to sit in my chair, in my comfy sofa, in my slippers, and, and, and pretend I'm too deaf to hear my wife. That's, that's my goal. Oh, oh hey, sweetie. <laughs> You're going to put me in a home, aren't you? <laughs> Fair enough. So, I mean, this is, I mean, he's an old man. 
It's a long time to be waiting for God to get into his life. But not only that, he's rejected by the Hebrews, he's hunted by the Egyptians, and he's identified as an Egyptian by the Midianites. He's given up his royal lifestyle in order to become a hero only to end up as a shepherd. But what's really interesting to me is his son, Gershom. Gershom doesn't get a lot of mention, but he gets a lot more mention than his brother, Eleazar. In fact, Eleazar doesn't get a mention at all in this chapter. And it makes you wonder why. Why does Gershom get a mention and not Eleazar? Well, it's common during that time and in in times past there, in biblical times, basically, that they would often name their children based on what was going on at the time, their situation at the time. So Gershom's name basically means foreigner, and the meaning of his name is, I have become a foreigner in a foreign place. And I think the Bible points that out because that is the picture of who Moses is. That is his identity, how what he has taken on for himself. He is the foreigner. I've been a foreigner before, went over to the States. I got my wife there, so it's great. It was a good time, honestly. No, I went over to the States, and it was a really good time. I enjoyed it. I mean, there's no complaints here. But at the same time, you feel a little out of place. Accent's a little different. You know, you you have a few different customs. You're not used to eating peanut butter and absolutely everything over there. And so you just feel not quite like you belong. And maybe some of you feel that way. You may have moved to New Zealand, and hopefully you feel welcomed here. We want to welcome you. But at the same time, there's a sense of, you know, not quite normal. Perhaps, I don't know. That actually happened on the way back, too. I gathered, uh, I got an accent, as you can probably hear, from my time over the States. And then I come home, and people kind of saw me as being a bit of a foreigner as well. And they make jokes a little bit about being half American and all of that sort of stuff. And it's all well and good. But it, there's a sense of tinge in there that I don't really belong, you know. This idea of Moses, the rejected foreigner. This is what the New Testament picks up when they tell the story again. There's a great passage in, in Acts chapter 7. A guy named Stephen, if you don't know Stephen, get to know him in in Acts 7 and 6, and I'm not sure how many chapters he covers, but great story of a guy who went out and boldly proclaimed the gospel and and was arguing in the the town square about Jesus being the true Messiah. Really awesome guy. He gets arrested, of course, because that's what they did to, to Christians back then, and is dragged before the religious leaders, and the Spirit comes on him. And he starts telling the story to the religious leaders. And he recaps the history of of Israel, or at least the important parts of the history of Israel. And he comes to Moses. And when he tells the the story of Moses, this is the part of the story that he focuses on. He's not interested in plagues or Passover or, you know, the Red Sea or anything like that. His focus when he's talking to these religious leaders is the rejection that Moses had from his Hebrew people. Why? 
Why does Moses, why does Stephen focus on that? In fact, you can see it in verse 25. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. But they did not. Why does Stephen focus on this? Because he sees something in this story that I just did not see up until I was preparing this message. He sees something in this story that is very, very important. Moses was a man who gave up his royal position in order to help rescue his own people, only to be rejected by his own people. Thus, he becomes a foreigner in a foreign land, a man without a home. Does that at all sound familiar? Like a man who gave up his royal position at the right hand of God in order to help rescue his people from slavery, only to be rejected by those people, thus becoming a foreigner in a foreign land. Exodus 2 is the story of Moses living the life Jesus was going to live thousands of years later. Now, a lot of times Jesus does things to mimic the story of Moses in order to show that he is leading the second exodus. This is kind of swapped around. This is Moses mimicking the life of Jesus. This is Moses taking on what was going to happen to the Messiah. It's, it's incredible because God is already setting the stage for the sequel before the first exodus even happens. Before Moses even starts his own story, he is already putting on the costume for Jesus' story. Absolutely incredible, amazing stuff. Of course, as we're seeing, Moses not thinking this is so amazing. <laughs> He's not so much on board with that this is great. And I don't know exactly how much Moses knew about the future or what God revealed to him, but I'm pretty sure he didn't know that he was mimicking the second exodus. For him, he was just a rejected person in a foreign land, a man without a home. And I guess, you know, when we start looking at how we can relate to this story, that's a pretty good place to start. Rejected by his own people, foreigner in a foreign land. In a very real way, we are also foreigners in a foreign land. Whether we are born here or not doesn't matter. When we take on the identity of Christ, when we live out our faith, more often than not, we are going to be rejected by our own people. It's going to happen. If it hasn't, just wait a while. <laughs> it will. And so we become foreigners in a foreign land, citizens of a kingdom far away. And that kind of hurts a little bit. You know, I mean... Look, I'm so glad to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, you know, and that so outweighs anything that could happen here. We get that, but at the same time, we live our lives day by day amongst our own people. And it, it kind of hurts a little bit, stings to not be considered one of them, to be different, to be an outcast. It's not as bad for us as it is for some, but again, it's like when I came back from the States brought my accent with me. People kind of jabbed at me a little bit. You're not really a Kiwi. Ha, 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 ha. But it kind of hurt. 
So I am. That's who I am. So we can relate to Moses. Rejected people, foreigners. Thankfully, like Moses, we look forward to a kingdom far greater than this one. A place we will never be rejected for who we are, what we believe, who we follow. A place where that will be celebrated. And thankfully also we have this community as well where we can do that. But I think for most of us, what we relate to most in the story of Moses here is just the sense of 40 years as a shepherd in Midian. The sense of waiting. The sense of just nothing's happening. You know, I'm trying to live my life and, and, I, and I've been told I'm part of this grand biblical story, but it just feels like my life is just so... Blah, just so disappointing. Unimpressive. Normal. We feel like we're waiting for something. Something more. There's a great part, one of the best books ever written. Oh, the places you will go, Dr. Zeus. Not a kid's book. It is a kid's book, but man, it's awesome. There's a page in here where he talks about the waiting place. And he says, we find ourselves in the waiting place for people just waiting. Waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go, or the mail to come, or the rain to go, or the phone to ring, or the snow to snow, or waiting around for a yes or no, or waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting. Waiting for the fish to bite, or waiting for wind to fly a kite, or waiting around for a Friday night, or waiting perhaps for their Uncle Jake, or a pot to boil, or a better break or a string of pearls, or a pair of pants, or a wig with curls, or another chance. Everyone is just waiting. And I wonder if Moses felt like he was in the waiting place. He had a sense of purpose. He was a Hebrew in a high position. He was going to help the Hebrews, and now he's in Midian, and that's fine. Maybe God's got something planned, but as the 40 years just rolled into one another, he must have just felt the sense of, is anything going to happen with my life? Is anything going to happen with my life? And I wonder how many of us feel that way about our own lives. Is anything going to happen? Am I going to do anything to impress God, to be part of this grand biblical story? Is anything going to happen to me that is going to mean something? And I wonder if perhaps we just need to rethink what it means to mean something. History remembers the big actions. History remembers the exoduses. The, the most high magnitude events. Let me ask you a question. What does God remember? What is impressive to God? Let's think of it this way. We cannot judge a person's sinfulness based on the quantity or even the magnitude of their sins, right? They're sinful or they're not, which is good. In my case, <laughs> people are sinful. It's just a 
flat line. So why do we think that God judges our accomplishments any differently? Put it this way. Is the Exodus more impressive to God as far as Moses' actions? Is Moses' actions as the rescuer of the Hebrews, is that more impressive to God than his actions as a husband and a father to two boys? Is it better? Is it more important? Is it more meaningful? Is Moses' 40 years in Midian less or more meaningful than his 40 years leading the Hebrews? And I'm guessing if Zipporah and Gershom and Eliezer were answering that question, it would be a no. Those 40 years were every bit as important. This was the time that their family grew. This was the time that they learnt from their dad who God was. This is the time where Zipporah got a husband and had a family. Yes, that other stuff's really important, but this... From their perspective, this is their family. This is their life. Do you want to know what really impresses God? Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. It's not up on the screen. But when you go to Hebrews chapter 11, what do you see there? You see what we call the spiritual hall of fame, right? And there's all of these great actions by these people, you know, and you've, you've got Abraham and you've got Moses in there and you've, you've got Isaac, you've got all of these guys, all of the great names, and they're doing these fantastic things. Have a look a little closer. What is impressive about what they are doing? Is the ark that Noah built impressive? Sure. But the impressive part of that story is not the ark that he built. It was the fact that he built the ark. When you look at the story of Moses' mom, hiding Moses away, it's not the, the hiding that was impressive. I mean, she obviously did a very good job. But what's most impressive was the fact that she decided to hide him. Do you know all of the events in Hebrews 11, the events of the Bible, the impressiveness of all of their actions can be summed up with this. I just took a step forward, by the way. For those who are listening to the podcast and see, that's just what happened there. <laughs> took a step forward. They did. What's impressive about the people in Hebrews chapter 11 is not the end of their sentence, but the beginning. Have a look again. As far as I can tell, entry into the spiritual hall of fame is required, requires two words. By faith. By faith, Noah built the ark. By faith, Moses' parents hid him. By faith, all of these people did such fantastic work. So again, I ask you, what is more impressive to God? The great big exodus? Or his family life? Or was it the fact that he lived his life by faith? And you know what? If we want our lives to be meaningful, 
if we want our lives to be impressive, the secret ingredient is only two words. By faith. By faith, I live at peace with the people around me. By faith, I work as hard as I can at my job, even when the boss is not looking. By faith, I give to the church when times are financially tough. By faith, I do everything I can to help out. By faith, I tell my kids that I love them, but God loves them even more. By faith, by faith, by faith. If we can add those two words to the beginning of everything that we do, God will take all of our little actions and he will transform our lives, our world in front of our eyes. And then we will be able to sit at the table with the giants of history, with Peter, with Paul, with Moses, with Abraham, with Elijah, with David. And we'll be able to sit at that table because we will all know that the only thing that we were able to do that garnered any glory or any impressiveness upon ourselves was that we stood and we lived by faith. That's it. Everything else belongs to the man at the head of the table. Everything else belongs to God. We want our lives to mean something. Let's live them by faith. And suddenly our 40 years in the Midian desert isn't a waste of time. It is a time where we lived impressively to God. No, it may not hit the history books. We may not be remembered by people, but we will be remembered by God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that um, you have included in your story of your amazing actions in, in, in Egypt a little picture of Moses' life. Help us to aspire less to the Moses of chapter 3 and onwards and more to the Moses of chapter 2 in the sense that we just want to live our ordinary lives in an extraordinary way, by faith. We want to hang with the spiritual giants that have gone before us, but not because we do things that other people will find impressive, but because we do things that you will find impressive. And you look at our heart. Help us to live by faith. And help us to be content with that. And that if you take us on grand adventures like you did with people in the Bible, great. But that's not where we find our meaning. We find our meaning by living by faith and by impressing you as kids impress their dads. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.